teaching satellite swarms to talk to each other. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Zach Manchester, Assistant Professor of Robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Dr. Manchester. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us today. Tell us about Carnegie Mellon's Robotic Exploration Lab and what it is that you do there. Sure, yeah. So um, I direct the Robotic Exploration Lab, and uh, we are sort of a, a lab that's focused on uh, broadly on uh, control systems, which is, I like to call it the science of moving things. So this is basically how uh, you make spacecraft, robots, self-driving cars, whatever it is, how you take a system like that that has a bunch of sensors on it and a bunch of actuators, and, and it's, it's all about the smarts in between. So taking those sensor measurements and processing them and figuring out uh, how to move the actuators to get that system to, to do what you want, to move it, to sort of like get the car to merge onto the highway, to get the rocket to land, uh, or, or you know, get the robot to walk uh, up the stairs. That's sort of what we do, uh, big picture. And, and we do it on a huge range of systems from legged robots to autonomous cars to, to spacecraft. ZDNet contributor Greg Nichols published a story about your involvement with a NASA experiment to maximize the effectiveness of CubeStats. Start by explaining what a CubeStat is and explain the experiment, please. Sure, yeah. So um, a CubeSat is a standard for a small spacecraft. These things are um, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters and about a kilogram. So like a box you could hold in the palm of your hand. Um, and they're, they've been standardized over the last 20 years. The, the big deal with CubeSats is that they're, they're small, they're cheap to build, and they're, because of that standardization, relatively cheap to get launches for. So they've kind of blown up in the last 10 years. Uh, first in the university context, these were like um, how, how basically how universities and, and you know, project teams and this sort of thing got projects into space. And um, since then, you know, since a bunch of the students have now graduated over the last few years, it spawned this entire uh, uh, space startup ecosystem around these very small, cheap, cheap satellites. And, and roughly speaking, you can now launch one of these satellites for the price of a car. So it's now within the realm of possibility for a startup to go launch a, a satellite constellation of these CubeSats. And there's lots of examples of this, uh, people doing everything from uh, weather to ship tracking to, uh, to, to you know, imagery for agriculture and, and all kinds of stuff now. So then how might an autonomous swarm of CubeStats help with communication and navigation even on the moon and Mars? Yeah, so um, the project that we're currently working on with NASA Ames Research Center, it's, it's a mission called V-REX. And what we're trying to do is take, uh, we're trying to develop really the underlying technology uh, to enable large numbers of these small satellites called call swarms or constellations or whatever you want. Uh, to sort of autonomously uh, talk to each other and work together towards common goals. So right now, there are you know, startups, for example, that have dozens of these or even hundreds of these kind of small satellites on orbit. But right now, they kind of all just hang out by themselves. They don't talk to each other and they kind of just go about their business, um, collecting data or whatever and, and communicating directly back down to the ground. What we're trying to do is, is um, allow these, these CubeSats to talk to each other, to navigate relative to each other, and to sort of autonomously work together. Um, and there's a ton of applications for this. You mentioned sort of navigation and uh, looking at space exploration. There's, there's definitely applications like that. Um, so I'll give you a few examples, I guess. 
Uh, one that, that I'm super interested in and have been for the last few years is uh, radio astronomy. So there's um, uh, low frequency radio astronomy. So this is frequencies down in the like tens of megahertz range is one of the last frontiers in, in observational astronomy. The reason is that those long wavelengths, those really low frequencies don't get through the atmosphere. They get blocked by the Earth's ionosphere. And uh, because, of, uh, because of redshift, so like far away stuff ends up shifted into lower frequencies, the really far away, really old stuff is all down in these low, low frequencies. And right now it gets blocked by the Earth's atmosphere and we can't see it from the ground. So uh, very fundamentally, the only way you can have a telescope that can see in those really far away, really old you know, outer reaches of space is to put the, the radio telescope up above the ionosphere, up in space. Uh, and if you want to do a good job of this and be able to have high resolution, you need a huge sensing aperture. Uh, and it, it doesn't have to be necessarily a giant dish. It can be a whole bunch of little antennas, but they have to kind of be spread out over kilometers and synced up and phased together to form one big effective telescope. And so one of the ways we've looked at doing that is with a whole bunch of these small satellites with individual antennas uh, communicating and sort of navigating relative to to each other to form a big radio telescope. So that's something we could do in, in Earth orbit to sort of radio astronomy. Uh, other things that, that we've kind of been looking at and, and are really interested in uh, exploration-wise away from Earth, um, one is, is studying asteroids. So um, the way we currently kind of study asteroids, we can, we can um, get you know, images of them um, when they're really far away. In that case, they basically look like a little speck, like a, a pixel or two. And uh, when we try to infer more about them, say how big they are, that kind of thing, it's really tough when you just have a pixel. Um, so we've sent a few missions to, um, to asteroids and uh, these are really tough to do uh, for a bunch of reasons. One of them is that we don't know a whole bunch about the asteroid when we get there. And um, the size of the asteroid, its mass, density, et cetera, that determines um, the, the gravitational pull on the spacecraft when you get there. So right now, the kind of state-of-the-art thing and how we do this is we send these big expensive satellites to these asteroids and we use propulsion to kind of like try to orbit around these asteroids. We don't know what the gravity is when we get there. So we, we have to do this really carefully and really slowly and then gradually kind of crank the orbit down and get closer as we learn more. And um, it's a really expensive, really slow process basically. Uh, so one of the things we've looked at doing is sending a swarm of these small cheap satellites to kind of fly by the asteroid uh, and not need all this exquisite sort of navigation capability. And, and by just having a lot of them that are talking to each other, you can collect a whole bunch of imagery and um, also by, by measuring ranges during a flyby event, potentially back out the gravity field and a whole bunch of information about the internal structure uh, by, by basically having say a hundred satellites instead of one. You can do this in kind of a one shot flyby rather than needing to capture an orbit for a long time with a big expensive satellite. Uh, other things like you mentioned, um, lunar exploration, Mars exploration. Uh, a good example there of, of things people are looking into uh, is, is GPS for the moon effectively. So right now, you know, we have GPS on earth. It's a, we all use it, it's great. Uh, if you wanna sort of drive a rover around on, on Mars or the moon, we don't have that, right? Uh, so there's a big interest in deploying uh, something like a GPS constellation at the moon, say, so that ground resources on the moon have access to positioning time and communication relays, you know, on the surface. Uh, one way you might do that is with a whole bunch of small satellites like these instead of a handful of large expensive satellites like the, the current GPS constellation on Earth. 
So I see the bass guitars behind you. So it's no surprise that you're interested in low frequencies. Uh, what are some of the technical challenges, if you will, that you face uh, getting cube stats to essentially talk to each other? Yeah, there's a few. Um, so, I mean, there's the basic hardware challenges of, of you know, squeezing all this stuff into tiny boxes and low power, uh, you know, constraints and that kind of thing. Uh, that's come a long way in the last decade or two, just because of Moore's law and really this, the CubeSat thing really took off, I would argue in large part because of the iPhone sort of indirectly, uh, because of consumer electronics and the demand for smartphones. Um, the amount of computing and sensing you can fit into these little boxes has, has just skyrocketed in the last few years. So that problem is largely kind of taken care of itself and is you know one of the reasons that CubeSats have become so popular and, and so capable. It's because we can leverage all this cheap technology that's been developed for smartphones. Um, the stuff that we really focus on uh, is, is kind of the algorithmic side of this problem. Like how do you do navigation uh, autonomously with a uh, hundred or even a thousand of these satellites? Uh, and, and there's, there's a real scalability challenge there in that you know, the, the traditional way of doing it is for each one of these satellites to individually communicate with the ground and for there to be human operators involved in scheduling things and tasking things and sending commands to each individual satellite. And that kind of breaks down when the numbers get to a thousand, say, right? Like you can't, can't really do that with so many spacecraft kind of all together. And there becomes uh, a, a huge scalability challenge. And, and, and really there, that's kind of where where we focus and trying to figure out algorithms that can reason about these things autonomously and do it in a decentralized way. So, you know, we don't, the other thing we don't want to do is have to say, collect all the sensor data from all the satellites on say one mothership satellite and have this like huge bottleneck of all the data coming into one central location where it gets processed. What we'd rather do, right, is have all the satellites kind of doing some amount of processing on their own data and talking to their, their neighbors and exchanging data like sort of in this mesh network and and having all this uh, autonomy software running in this kind of massive distributed way across all the satellites using all the resources uh, in a shared way. So that's kind of what we work on and that's the real technical challenge. How might private sector companies or entrepreneurs contribute uh, in this area in this field? Uh, well, I think there's there's already quite a lot going on. As I mentioned, there's there's a, a huge startup scene that's popped up in the last five to ten years around CubeSats, small satellites. Um, there's uh, a huge number of applications for Earth-facing, um, you know, kind of Earth observation uh, and and communication uh, with small satellites, um, imaging. The stuff that's sort of closest to what we're doing, I would say, is uh, there's been um, currently there's a, a rush to get into what. But I guess it's kind of called space-based IoT, so Internet of Things kind of devices. Um, one one sort of thing that seems to be blowing up right now, with a whole bunch of startups trying to get into this, is doing space-based data backhaul for tiny IoT devices. So if you've got this little device that's measuring, I don't know, temperature of some widget, and it's in the middle of nowhere uh, and doesn't have access to a cell tower or whatever, how do you get the data off of your your thing in sort of a remote rural area? And traditionally, the only way is via satellite, right? Via satellite communications. Like, so um, as these things have gotten tinier and tinier and these, these IoT devices are now you know, this big and energy harvesting and all that kind of stuff, uh, there's been a push to, to do the same thing, but at this tiny low power scale. And the existing satellite communications infrastructure is not set up for that. It requires like something the size of a, a brick, like a smartphone or, or something big to talk to the satellites, right? So there's been this push to, 
to develop a, a new generation of, uh, of satellite comms uh, that's focused on these tiny sort of edge IoT devices that, that are low power, low amounts of data. There's a few startups that have sort of successfully launched in this space now, and they're kind of doing a lot of the things we're talking about. It's large numbers of satellites, um, in some cases doing cross-linking and talking to each other and, and talking to these tiny edge devices on the ground and doing a bunch of this mesh networking kind of stuff. So there's some emerging, you know, interesting um, applications and, and some startups kind of getting into this general area. So between existing satellite constellations uh, and space debris, low Earth orbit is becoming a pretty crowded place. Do autonomous swarms of CubeSats offer any advantages there? Ah, so most of the stuff that we do is in, in very low orbits. Uh, and one of the advantages there is that it's sort of, in some sense, self-cleaning. Um, basically, uh, below, you know, a few hundred kilometers, everything's going to re-enter within a year or two. So these, and, and that's where most of this CubeSat kind of stuff lives. It's cheaper to get there. And, um, and the, the, the satellites at this size scale and at this cost are not designed to last that long. They're only built to last a couple of years. Um, so that kind of works itself out pretty well. So I would say for the most part, these kind of small satellite activities in, in low Earth orbit are fairly benign from a debris concern uh, perspective. But yeah, there are definitely people putting them in higher orbits where they are longer lived and it becomes a concern. Um, as far as bigger picture, sort of like the prospects of, of doing debris mitigation kind of things uh, autonomously for, for swarms of satellites, I think that's a really challenging problem. It's, a, it's really interesting uh, as a research problem. Um, I think the main issue there is uh, sort of knowing where the things are that you want to avoid. Uh, right now, the way this goes, it gets done is there, there's ground-based radars that track everything in, in low Earth orbit above a certain size, basically anything that's visible to the radars. There's a huge catalog that, that's maintained of all these objects. And there's uh, a handful of organizations that basically propagate the orbits of all those objects for a few weeks and check to see if anything's going to hit anything else and do this kind of collision forecasting. And if something looks like it's going to hit something else a couple of weeks out, they'll warn the, the satellite operators and uh, tell them to move if they can. Um, so that's kind of how it gets done now. Again, it's, it's a very centralized process, involves a huge amount of, of planning and, and human intervention on the ground. Um, I think the main obstacle to doing more of that autonomously is just that, that radar tracking data and the ability to know, you know what else is around you is, is very limited on these, these tiny satellites. They don't have the sensor capabilities to sort of see you know, other, other things around them, especially tiny things that are difficult to spot. Um, that said, yeah, I think that some of the sort of relative navigation techniques that, that we developed you know, could be used uh, if you say had that warning and you sent you know, sort of a command up to your swarm saying, hey, there's some object that's maybe you're gonna have a collision with in like a couple of days. Um, at that point, yeah, you could imagine having these distributed control algorithms try to move the swarm in a way that in a co coordinated way to avoid the object without having every single satellite individually tasked and commanded by a, a ground controller. Dr. Zach Manchester, Assistant Professor of Robotics at Carnegie Mellon University. If somebody wants to connect with you, Zach, maybe they want to find out more about the work you're doing. Uh, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, so our lab website is uh, roboticexplorationlab.org, and you can find a bunch of info about our, our various projects, including VREX, uh, as well as uh, our contact info to get in touch. Thanks again for taking time to, to join us, Zach. Thanks. And find more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or tanyahall.net.
Thanks for subscribing.